he or she was not emotionally connected and there was a weird thing going on, but this whole world was going on behind my back. Hey everybody, welcome to the Addiction Unlimited podcast, where you get to learn everything you wanna know about addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Angela Pugh, co-founder of Kansas City Recovery, life coach, and recovering alcoholic. To learn more about me, you can listen to episode zero on your podcast app or find us on the web at addictionunlimited.com. Hey, Kristen, thanks so much for coming on and having this conversation with me. I think this is going to be a really good, enlightening conversation, and I'm so glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Why don't we take just a couple of minutes and let everybody know a little bit about you and what you do? Um, well, I'm licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of California and a life coach. Um, one of my specialties is addiction recovery, but that also is kind of manifested into process addictions, uh, specifically sex and love addiction. And also from that, I am kind of an expert in managing the relationship crisis that tends to unfold under those conditions. And so um, I've worked in treatment centers and military bases and schools, and now I'm just running my private practice and try to help clients in relationship crisis and figuring out how to navigate uh, their life and their relationships post-infidelity, addiction discovery, emotional abuse, et cetera. Yeah. And I love that you just had that little mini list right there, because those are all the things that I want to hear about and I want my audience to hear about. Um, something I'm really curious about that comes up frequently, and maybe you can shed some light on this for us, is often when one person in the partnership gets sober, the other doesn't. And this creates a lot of layers, right? There's a lot of fear and anxiety around that. Do you have some guidance for how people can navigate that in their relationship? When one partner uh, is abstains from substance abuse and the other partner chooses not to abstain in a similar matter? Yeah. I think what what I see most often and what my clients are typically dealing with is, you know, when you are in active addiction, drinking, we'll just use alcohol as the example, when you are actively drinking and that's your life and you meet your person in that stage of life and you create this relationship and get married and have a family and buy a house and you start doing all of the grown up things. And then all of a sudden the drinking is problematic it is problematic for both people, but only one quits. Now, occasionally, I do see people where the one partner has a problem and the other one really doesn't, right? Who's a very casual drinker and, and that obviously doesn't create the same level of issues as if both partners have a problem. So when one person says like, I'm not feeling good about this, I'm not crazy about my behavior. It's really affecting me. I need to give alcohol up. Like this is important to me. I'm tired of feeling like crap. But the other partner doesn't want to give it up and they want to maintain that lifestyle of going out and drinking and and it's how you connected. Like I think back if I would have gotten married in my 20s, I was an entirely different human being. 
So how do you navigate that and and stay together in, in a very kind of surface level? Like I, I realize I'm a coach too. I get that this is a really deep yeah, question. Yeah, it's messy, with a ton, right? Because yeah. it's never my job to tell someone what their values and goals are. They establish them and then I kind of work treatment around what their established goals are. Um, in the scenario you're describing, it's often kind of blaming external things for the problems, for the relationship problems, for my, you know, my sadness or my anxiety, you know, I just need a different job. I just need a different partner. I just need more money. Um, and so when one person takes their substance use out of the dyad system, it's really interesting to see how everything starts shifting and it becomes a little bit more apparent how it's also probably not likely working for the other person. It's just now it's a lot more clear because you can't blame it on your partner, his or her use. You know, I only drank a bottle of wine because he or she helped me drink that bottle of wine. Right. <laughs> or right. she cracked it open. And so now you can kind of confront those realities a little bit more clearly. That's what I tend to see. Yeah. And it does, it, it does induce a lot of fears, right? Even for a partner. So I think as people getting sober, right? Like I'm a recovering alcoholic. And as the person getting sober, obviously you have a ton of fears. There's a lot to think about. There's a lot of curiosity and uncertainty. What is my future going to look like? What am I going to do? How am I going to have fun? How am I going to connect with people? Are my current friends still going to want to hang out with me <laughs> if I'm not doing this the same way? Who, who am I without who am I, right? Sally? <laughs> right. Like what do I even like? And that's a huge piece too, because you don't know what you like anymore. It's like everything I did was revolved around drinking. So it's hard to sit down and go, okay, well, you took the drinking away, but like, what do I, what do I even like to do? <laughs> like, what hobbies mm -hmm. do I want to partake in? Um, so for the, par for the partner also, though, there are a ton of fears. Like, what is this going to look like? How does this affect our life? How does this affect how we socialize? How does this affect our intimacy? Is that person going to be judging me and my drinking habits and how yeah. are we going to navigate that? And yeah, it brings up a lot for both people. Yeah. Cause again, usually the identified problem in the relationship has just been him and his drinking, you know, if, if that went away. Um, and then when you actually take it away, it throws everything. We, we you start noticing all the other things start coming to the surface. Um, the struggles with intimacy, struggles with vulnerability, uh, maybe unprocessed, unverbalized resentments, feelings of betrayal, right? Lying, sneaking around behaviors, um, anxieties of now that you're a different person and you have a different community, can you still love me? Those things like that. Yeah. On both sides from both yeah. the addict or non-addict, or maybe if they're co, you know, both addicts would go on. And that's the part I feel like gets so often overlooked, right? Of course, because, you know, part of the human condition is being incredibly self-absorbed, <laughs> like all of us as humans think about ourselves and how mm -hmm. we feel and what we want. Um, addicts take it to another level for sure. But we get so consumed in what's happening for us that we often forget the other person has feelings and experiences and curiosities and fears at the same time. Right. And often the addicts struggle with being able to communicate that process it, and, and the partner too. Yeah. Um, they haven't really been practicing they don't have the strong muscle built up in, in healthy communication and productive communication. And 
this is a safe place, you know, because previously, usually it wasn't a place where they could be productive, where they could talk about hard things, where they could process difficult feelings. So yeah, it's almost like first relearning. This is even a safe place to talk about those vulnerabilities. It amazes me how kind of bad we are at communication, right? Because it is a learned skill. Like it's not, you're not just born knowing how to communicate effectively, you know, but it also kind of amazes me that we're not taught, you know, like I feel like communication and conflict resolution should be something you're doing all through school because those are skills that you need to use in every area of your life forever. But people really, most of us really are not taught effective communication. Yeah. No, I I joke on my YouTube channel that I offer all this information because none of us learned how to do it in school. Um, And usually we learn our emotional intelligence, our social intelligence, or maybe even lack thereof, and our relationship skills, conversation, communication, through uh, role modeling and trial and error. So, I mean, that's it. And you do do conflict resolution. You know, Bobby took my pencil. (laughs) Susie broke up with me. Like, you do do it, but just no one really sits there and puts it in a structured way that helps people understand why people do the crazy things that they do, why hurt people hurt people, and all those dynamics that I think all of us in the wellness field try to make very clear, kind of put them in very clear palatable, understandable ways to the public. Yeah, absolutely. I want to dig into really this betrayal trauma and different ways that that can present because I feel like uh, infidelity is probably, for me, the first thing that kind of comes to mind when I think about betrayal trauma. Uh, But the other thing I think about is, again, in that dynamic of substance abuse, there is a lot of lying. Oftentimes people are hiding what they're doing. And not only in substance process addictions too, certainly gambling, sex addiction, porn addiction. There's a lot of sort of deceit in these addictions. And am I correct that that is its own betrayal trauma? Is this the same thing in its core? Yes. I mean, I'm extremely passionate about this topic because I think our culture is gets it totally wrong. I mean, you can just you can see someone and go, oh, okay, the husband was an addict, um, but he stopped drinking now. Like, what's the big deal? Or okay, so she dabbled in pornography use, like, but she said she stopped now, and what's the big deal? Or he gambled and lost a hundred thousand dollars. What's the big deal? The part that Um, our culture generally falls short in understanding is the more lasting effects, which is what I call the betrayal trauma part. And that is this, you know, it's, it's not about, yes, he ingested the alcohol and maybe had a raging problem or sorry to get vulgar, but the penis went into the vagina when there was infidelity and, you know, they had that affair. I always say it's, it's not about it's not as much about those acts as it's this um, fact that you're kind of left reeling the partner of like, Oh my God, I didn't see this coming. Who is this person that I married? How did I miss this? Um, And it just bleeds into every other facet of your life. Um, So it's not just dealing with the fact that my husband is an alcoholic and maybe he created a really chaotic 
abusive environment because of that. It was like, I thought we got married to be partners. And when I would say, this is really hurting me, I thought you kind of loved me enough, right? This is the language of it. As we know, it's not about how much you love somebody, the addiction Mm -hmm. takes over, but these are the stories you tell yourself as a betrayed partner that you would have been honest with me, or you told me you were going to stop drinking and you didn't, or you told me you'd go to these meetings and you didn't. And you kept telling me, oh, if you didn't nag me as much, then, then I would stop drinking. And the same thing happens with sex addiction. You know, I knew he was, he or she was not emotionally connected and there was a weird thing going on, but this whole world was going on behind my back. This double life, these secret rendezvous, this money being spent, these things said behind my back, these people he or she was hanging out with as part of his addiction. And and it it makes you question everything in your life. You know, like if this is my main partner and I didn't see this coming, what else am I missing? Is everybody else lying and sneaking around? Does anybody else actually value the sanctity of marriage or am I the only sucker walking around here? And it leaves you with this feeling of extreme unsafety of, of like, all I have are my instincts and intuition. And if everything is, is wrong, then how do I keep myself safe in the future? So that's one big thing. It's not about as much about what happened as how could you come home to me every day and lie to my face? How could you make promises to me and then just go back and, 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 and also just go back on those promises? I thought we were going to be partners, teammates, like roll our sleeves up and fight. You just stepped out of our marriage over and over and over and over again. And so there's a emotional reconciling that happens there, obviously spiritual too. And then there's a, there's an actual physical consequence that I try to help people realize. Um, if you start seeing, you know, your girlfriend who's dealing with her husband, who's an alcoholic and going through treatment and all that aftermath, she's going to be highly dysregulated. And unfortunately, we judge that person um, like, oh, God, calm down. Or maybe you were like a little too neurotic. And there's all I mean, I've heard it all. And it's pretty brutal. But what they don't realize is that this person's in severe trauma, um, where it's it's no different. Your body, body records it no different than any other life-threatening experience, like a serious car accident or being held up at gunpoint. Like your brain just wants to keep you alive. So it's very generalized. And for all you know, your husband or wife lying to you for a long period of time will kill you just as quickly as someone pulling a weapon on you. Because the it, the two big factors that lead to you wanting to record something, your brain wanting to record something as traumatic, is how blindsided you felt by it. So you did not see it coming. Your best thinking couldn't help you with it. And how powerless you are to what's happening around you. And addiction and loving someone who has addiction issues, that is, there is a lot of blindsidedness and powerlessness that occurs on a chronic regular basis. So your body records it as trauma and rewires around it. And there's absolutely a need for trauma therapy post uncovering 
unknown infidelity, addiction, et cetera. I so appreciate you saying that too. It reminds me of, yeah, I've been an interventionist for many, many years. And so often when I'm working with a family and we're doing the intervention and we're coaching through that process and leading up to it, the energy and focus is so much on that the addicted person getting help. They have to have help with their problem. And I always say it doesn't do a lot of good to send your person away to treatment to get help for them to come back to the same broken system. Like everybody has to get help. But it's kind of what you were talking about a few minutes ago too in all the blaming. It's like everybody's so consumed with pointing the finger at you know whose fault it is and they're the main problem and this is the issue and that's the issue. But it's like I always tell people if you look back to who you were before you started having to deal with this battle of addiction, whether you're the addicted person or a family member, loved one, whoever, look back at who you were before this. And I promise you, you are different. I promise mm -hmm. you how you view life, how you handle problems, how you respond to things is different because it changes everybody, whether you yeah. have it yourself or you're just a loved one, it changes everyone. Mm -hmm. And and betrayal, it can be big, giant betrayals, like uncovering, um, you know, a 10-year affair that you didn't know about or, you know, or finding out that your husband had a secret cocaine habit. But, or it can be little baby betrayals. And these are little tiny moments where your nervous system wires around new information and says, uh-oh, this is scary. Uh-oh, you need to behave this way to manage how scary this is. Uh-oh, this part of him isn't trustworthy or her. You And so obviously the consequences I see of long-term being married to someone who's an addict is there's hypervigilance. You know, where are you going? Why aren't you going? And by the way, it's not just to that person because remember our, our nervous system goes, okay, any human seems to be chaotic and uncertain. So then it's hypervigilance around your children and how to protect them from harm. Um, sometimes they appear controlling. Sometimes they appear, you know, wh where are you going? Why are you doing this? What, what What's the plan? Um, okay, I mean, if I watch him enough, then he can't go act out again, or he can't go um, cheat again. And a general kind of doomsday scenario, or I see the complete opposite end of the spectrum, which is someone who's like, I have no feelings. I have no opinions. I just move along. I just focus on everyone else's needs. I have no needs. Um, I don't even know who I am or what I like in life because as long as I stay in this neutral spot, I can maybe keep some semblance of my family system together. But I have to totally shut down and disconnect from all the big fire red flags that are going off to maintain that status. So I see it all. Um, and I, I, I'll add this in this little snippet is I feel like therapists who aren't trained in these concepts of betrayal trauma or how living with someone who's constantly lying, sneaking around, behaving incongruently, those who aren't trained to understand those dynamics put a lot of judgment on the betrayed partner, on the partner being lied to. Um, I hear a lot of judgmental diagnoses, let's say. Mm -hmm. And I mean, what it is, what often their explanation is, is it's just a, a nervous system that's wrecked 
from being with someone who's so chaotic, so uncertain, who lies so often, um, and they've done their best coping to survive in those systems. It makes you feel crazy. Like, I know I had a span of time, obviously being super emotionally unhealthy in my own active drinking life, where... I chose just the absolute worst people, right? To date. So <laughs> comes in the package. Comes in the package. Know, it, does, it does. It does. Um, so I had all of these years, literally, that I every single person I dated lied, cheated, all of those things, right? Because I just chose the same type of person over and over again. And I, I distinctly remember just feeling like what is wrong with me? You know, like, why is this Mm -hmm. happening? Mm -hmm. Or like, I would like, he'd be uh, sitting across the table and just blatantly lie to me. And I knew he was lying. I would accept it. Right. Mm -hmm. And just act like nothing happened. But in my head, I would be like, what? Like, does he think I'm dumb? Like, does he think I believe him? Like what? It's so maddening trying to navigate through it. And it does, it makes you feel crazy. And like you said earlier, it, it definitely made me not trust my own judgment being in those situations. And I know I see Mm -hmm. that with a lot of my clients too. And so many of my audience members are probably nodding their head in agreement right now, but it is like, it just makes you feel like you're losing your damn mind. Like what is wrong with me? Why why am I damn mind? It does. And like, and then the worst thing can I add is then you walk into a therapist's office to try to get help. And like, God bless you for saying, okay, I can't do this. I feel crazy. And those who aren't trained to understand the dynamics go, oh yeah, maybe you need to calm down. Or if you would just leave the guy, right? And so then you feel all this shame and, you know, now, oh my, yeah, I'm just exposing myself to abuse. I'm a horrible person. Um, or, you know, maybe if you'd stop drinking, then none of this stuff would be happening. But it's like, these are all very separate, separate, separate things, you know, and, and understanding the model of betrayal trauma can really, really help, help the people who are, who are there to help those, um, in a struggling state to really understand if I saw this person from a nervous system, like what their nervous system is showing me is that they are in a trauma state. Now they haven't gotten in an accident or held up at gunpoint recently. So that leads me to believe there's something immediately in their environment that is contributing to these like PTSD, hypervigilance, emotional dysregulation state. Um, What's going on there? And I ask more questions. Yeah. And you're also also you're also judging yourself the same way. Absolutely. Like I remember being in that pattern of, oh, well, I just need to be more patient. I just mm-hmm. need to be kinder. I just need like always wanting to take all the responsibility mm-hmm. on myself as if there were something I could do, right? Because I didn't understand that I was powerless. Like I am powerless over another person's behavior and choices. But I didn't get that back then. So like you're talking about therapists saying like, maybe you need to calm down. Like that's what you're saying to yourself. And that's part Mm -hmm. of what plays Mm -hmm. into keeping you engaged in the dysfunction. Yeah. It's, it's, it just re reinforces those shame stories, right? If he loved me enough, or if I had sex with him more, or if I was prettier or smarter or more understanding, 
Because that, that will always be, no matter how many times someone cheats on us or abuses us, I always try to help clients understand we have this like survival mechanism in us that's like, okay, it's too scary for me to realize that these people will do things and I have no control over it. My brain does not like that story because that's like way too open-ended and it needs to like shut that story down. So how it shuts it down is it creates a shame story, which is a me-focused story of I could be better, I could do better. A lot of my clients don't connect with it because it's very subconscious and it's very quiet. And they'll be like, no, I don't feel any shame that he cheated on me. And I'd be like, yeah, it's really, really quiet. But it whispers, if you didn't nag so much, if you were a better mom. And that part has to be part of the treatment. You have to talk about the shame, even though you've been victimized. There's some quiet little story in there. And it's just part of our survival mechanism that's just saying, no, 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 I got to write some story about how I could have changed this outcome, how it's my fault. Yeah, and because powerlessness is scary too. So scary. Feeling like you can't, like you don't, and it really isn't that you're powerless. It's just that your power lies in your own, in your boundaries and and Mm in figuring Mm -hmm. those things out, right. And working on yourself, like you're talking about Mm -hmm. getting the therapy to work on these things. That's where your power really lies because we are powerless over other people and their choices and behaviors. Like that part, you can't, you don't have any control over that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would say not just the boundaries and holding the boundaries and the consequences, but also the distress tolerance that's required. Because I think we all think when we have boundaries and we're like, "Ah, that's just not okay. And look at me, I'm living aligned with my boundaries and values and goals. I'm like living my best life. I want everyone to understand that that is not the most comfortable life. Mm. It is very, because wherever there's a boundary, wherever you're saying, hey, I really need this to feel safe. You are offering up a giant silver platter of, and do you love and value me enough to actually respect this? Because behind every boundary or holding every line, there's this possibility of being and feeling rejected from it. So it's the ultimate vulnerability to, to have boundaries. So we need to not forget that stepping into our power doesn't feel very good. It doesn't give you this like Wonder Woman thing. And I think that culturally is also something that we don't teach very well, that it's it's not a comfortable path, but it is ultimately the healthiest path where you're not walking around thinking you're crazy. Right. You know, <laughs> right. and that you're being abused. Or does he think I'm crazy? Like, how yeah. can he not? Yeah. And that was such a great way to explain it too, because I know we all struggle, certainly when boundaries are new to us, we all struggle in setting boundaries and then holding them, right? And it almost feels like, I know for me, it felt like like I was being mean, you know, <laughs> like trying yeah. to shift from codependent, yeah. people that, pleaser. That same story of to, who do you think you yes, are? Yes. Ew. Like, gosh, are you really not going to help? You're like, you're really not going to be available? Gross. Yeah. It's so crazy. And, but that is, I mean, it is uncomfortable. Now, I feel like it's only uncomfortable briefly because I feel right. like there is great You're playing reward. the long game. Yes, yes, for sure. Because there is incredible reward with boundaries. And once you do it right. a couple of times and you get through it and you see how good it feels, then you're like, right. oh, 
okay, yeah, I could do this a little bit more often. Right. This feels good. But it is, it, it's terrifying at first, <laughs> all of mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. fear of judgment and people's reaction. What are they going to think of me? Mm-hmm. And how is this going to change our relationship? And are they going to be mad at me? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So that's where the distress tolerance has to come in is you actually, again, speaking of wiring, our nervous system is only meant to handle so much. And so there's almost this like muscle we have to build to say, okay, this feels really yucky, but I have all these coping skills and this is how I'm going to get through this part, you know, this, this fear or this um, unknown. It sounds like too, as you're talking about it, that like most things in life, you know, certainly when it comes to making changes, it sounds like there's a lot of intention required, like to do it and do it well. Like you're saying, like really thinking about it and okay, this is going to be uncomfortable. Is this too much for me? What are my tools that I have? Like, who do I have to talk to or reach out to or journal or whatever your tools are? Everybody's a little bit different. But yeah, just being intentional in thinking about yourself and 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 what you could, how much you can really challenge yourself and push yourself to be uncomfortable. Yes, because any change that's going to happen, whether it's like I'm trying to eat differently to stop stomach issues, or I'm trying to do a workout plan to try to build strength or you know stave off health condition issues. And it's also emotional and relational challenges. All of those things are more successful when you have a plan, when you have a community, when you have an accountability system, and when there's, as you said, intentionality, right? I'm going to eat this, work out this way. I'm going to communicate in this way. When I get overwhelmed, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go to 12-step meetings and develop my community. And yes, it's all, I mean, that's why I love 12 steps because that's what you're doing. You're inviting more structure and accountability and intentionality and community into your daily life. And I always say, uh, unless you have another set of people who've been through the same kind of stuff you've been through are the same level of bullshitter that you are, you know, we'll check in with you regularly, we'll show you how they receive their level of um, success. And, you know, like, uh, then you need to go to a meeting. Sorry, that's like, I don't know where else you're going to find that, you know, can sit where you could say we joked, like, as long as you didn't kill two people in the past week, we've heard it all before. I'm not shocked. I can't be offended. I've done that all three times already. What's your point? Like, that's why you say get to a meeting. Yeah. You get all those things in a meeting. And it's free. And it's free, <laughs> right? <laughs> I feel like, like you and I are hear... both in the treatment world. We know how freaking expensive <laughs> this stuff can get. Yeah. But like, I also well? hear all the time like people are mad that stuff costs money. Like everybody is like, well, I can't afford that or I can't do that. Oh, it's too expensive. My insurance won't cover that. And it's like, listen, I can give you a whole bunch of options that don't really cost anything. I work in process addiction. There's like great, I'm in LA, obviously, and they have great meetings, SLA, like sex and love addicts meetings. They have spa, like sex and porn. They have, I mean, everything. They have places for everybody. Now, smaller cities, it's harder to find like a robust community, but also post COVID, they have everything online too. Everything is online. And like every podcaster like myself, we all have our own things too. So yeah, yeah the options yes, are endless. So when much I, access. Yes. When I got sober, there was nothing. 
Right. <laughs> there was AA was it. And and I'm fine with that, right? I went, I love it. It's incredible. It gave me everything I didn't even know I needed, certainly in those yeah. early days. And the love and acceptance I felt walking in that room was unlike anything I've ever been through. And I really needed that, you know, in my most broken moments. So yeah, but it is um such a good reminder. It's free. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, and I also, you were mentioning how the families also need treatment. I mean, that's why I, I hold small betrayed partners groups because yeah, your addict may be out, you know, working his or her program, but I want a space where you can start learning how to rewire your traumatized body, how to develop your communication, how to set those boundaries, how to lean into a community, i.e. this small group, all the same components that will probably make your addict partner successful, I want you to be able to adopt those same, same things in your life too, because that is really um, going to help th with the ultimate success of the partnership, of you as an individual. So, yeah. Is that what you would suggest as maybe a first step? Like, and I want to, again, from both sides, right? Person, partner. Um, mm -hmm. If you are the person with, the trauma. Is that what you would suggest as a good first step as a support group? Or would you suggest like therapy? Because a lot yeah. of people do trauma therapy, you hear EMDR everywhere, now ART, somatic experiencing, right. breath work. Right. A lot of my YouTubes are about talking about all those different things, but I don't necessarily agree about trauma treatment right away because as you know, the home environment can be quite unstable. So what my focus usually is post like relationship explosion um, is stabilization, like tool developing, uh, how to develop initial boundaries that of course can be adjusted and changed as time go, goes by. But yeah, I specifically have almost like my, my betrayed partners groups um, are made for like crisis, like the crisis just exploded, you know, bring me you in a complete state of crisis and I'll put you in a room with it's via zoom, but in a zoom room with, you know, 12 other women who are also in a state of crisis. And I'm just helping you develop like the best next steps forward. Um, going through understanding what traumas has done to your body, uh, how to, what even boundaries are, what are even these 12 step things that my husband is talking about, um, and just basic education. And then the idea is that if stabilization starts occurring on both sides, that's the better time to start doing like the EMDR or the somatic experience or the IFS or like all the things that you're listing. Um, there's probably going to be more success if you wait. And then ultimately too, you also put off couples work for the most part yeah. until the, stabiliza the stabilization occurs. Because let's be honest, like addicts will still be kind of manipulating be like, yeah, if you'd had sex with me more, maybe I wouldn't have gone to the prostitutes, you know, just things that are just very traumatizing, re-traumatizing and re-destabilizing for um, the betrayed partner to hear um, that's just coming from the addict and their like shame, shaming and blaming state, right? Not their recovery state. So I usually encourage that to get pushed off. I would think too, like you said, with your nervous system being so dysregulated, like that's not the moment you want to jump into EMDR. 
No. (laughs) Or, or talking about what happened in your couple's set, like in like what's going on. I joke that it's like, if you come into an ER for a car crash and you're like internally bleeding, it's like going, Oh, can you check out this suspicious mole on my shoulder? Like, no, that is not the time. To be like, or I've been having some gastrointestinal issues. Can you give me yeah, some nutritional right. guidance? No. <laughs> like, we got to deal with the internal bleeding or you're going to die in about an hour. Right. And then when you are stabilized, so meaning the you're in, you found some meetings, you've got some sober time, you actually have some minimal level of humbleness and surrender that you got a problem and you need to ask for help. And like, maybe your best thinking kind of got you here. Then you can eventually, and you know, and your wife or husband has finally like stopped planning your murder and can like actually sit and have a conversation with you, <laughs> right? Right? Like they kind of connected with their resentment and okay, like I need to find my people and find my other space because this home space is not going to be very safe for a while. Then we move over to like trauma work, rewiring the nervous system, going to couples therapy, finding out how how to communicate better, how to process former resentments, building empathy and compassion, things that really were absent in the relationship for a long time. Yeah. It's such good work, but it is really frightening work. It's for so who? worth it. For the person or for me? <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> oh, it's, it's the ultimate. I mean, no one wants to look in the mirror right? Like I said, those shame voices, no one ever wants to prove ultimately that I'm a bad person. And to sit down with your wife or husband who you've lied to relentlessly, who you have harmed so much by your conscious and unconscious actions Mm -hmm. and sit in that, what I call like that shame swamp, that is the ultimate courageous act in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah, no, I agree. I you agree. had an option. Your option was you could just have left and never come back, right? Like that. that's always the option. And yeah, there is a cowardness to that because there's true courage and vulnerability that can come from you coming back to the, you know, nuclear bomb scene and try to help start picking up the pieces and actually seeing ultimately... I'll carry this metaphor a little bit further. If you can build a stronger, better house than you've ever had or you ever knew was possible, right? I think that's why you and I do this for a living is because we've seen nuclear bombs come together again and just build better relationships with intimacy that they didn't even know was missing. That they, you know, how many times you heard, oh my God, I have a person back, you know, the addict who's in recovery. It's like, He's the father I never thought he could be. He's the husband I never thought he could be. You know, she's the wife who finally is present. And there's there's beauty in that. But yeah, you have to trudge through the mud and the swamps and the war battlefields before you can get there. I remember one of my good friends um, in AA said one time when he was three years sober, and this was several years ago, he was three years sober. And he and his wife had been together since they were like in their late teens, right? Like high school sweethearts. And they were in their forties then. And he said that his wife looked at him one day and she said, I have known a lot of versions of you over the years. She said, and I have to say, this is my favorite one yet. 
at three years sober. And yeah. I was like, that is so powerful. Like, that's so good. It is. And it's like the old, because as you know, people don't like to change. It's a very mm-hmm. uncomfortable process. Like down to your atoms, like atoms don't want to change. We fight it. <laughs> it's very uncomfortable. So I, that is like the ultimate courageous step, in my opinion. A, it's to love somebody when they're in the swamp and when you've seen like the worst of them and to pull your sleeves up and be like, there might be something else there and I'm going to sit here and see if there's a miracle. Like that is an extremely courageous act. Mm-hmm. And then to actually sit there and try to change and deal with the discomfort and the shame and the trauma and the pain. And ugh, that's just, that's the beauty of humanity right there. Yeah. Okay. On that note, how do you know when it really is time to go? <laughs> you know, like, because I think so I know, many of us will like roll up our sleeves and be like, okay, babe, let's figure this out. You yeah. know, like we're, we're going to tackle it together. We're going to figure this out. But at some point you do, I mean, everybody has a limit, right? At some point you do get to that place that it's like, mm, okay, dude, I think enough is enough. <laughs> like, right, how right. do you recognize? I feel like also that's so much of the question constantly, mm-hmm. again, certainly with my clients of like, okay, like, uh, should I keep going? Like, is this pointless? And I'm like, well, I'm not married to you, so I can't answer that. <laughs> yeah, I know. I can't be the, the, the determiner of such a big decision. I know I've come to peace with that question because I've, from my experience of working in this field for like 15 years now, is that they come to that conclusion organically. Um, meaning they, I've watched people just hit the wall and be like, oh, I found it. I'm done. Like, here it is. I was worried the day would come, but here it is now. Um, Because what's the saying? The opposite of hate is, or the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is just apathy. Like, I feel nothing Mm. and I don't care anymore. Indifference, yeah. Um, Indifference, yeah, is indifference, exactly. Um, And so I, I think that happens. And the way I think people come to that sooner. So meaning if they feel like they're kind of stuck, um, what I always say, it's like being stuck in purgatory. I don't want to leave. I'm afraid of leaving. I hate being where I'm at. Um, you know, it's still really unhealthy is I, that's when I actually find group work to be most profound. Mm. I love when they come to a me to keep kind of sorting this out because, Mm you know, every day they're walking into the, or every week they're walking into sessions with me going, yeah, I know I keep saying we need to go to couples therapy, but he still won't go or she won't go. I know I keep drawing that line saying, yeah, you need to go to meetings, but he or she won't go. And so there is something that happens where you're like, yeah, every week I keep asking for these needs to be met and I keep talking to you about it. And we're, oh, oh, we're doing the definition of insanity. Look at me. It's happening. And so, yes, engaging with someone outside of you and that crazy, you know, little monkey brain we have helps push that process forward, um, kind of keeps you less in the paralysis state. But then if you times it by 10, 12, 20 people who are in that same phase of life and you hear their stories and you hear the stories of the people whose partners do have good quality recovery and they have actually responded and they're genuine, genuinely sorry and empathetic for the harm they've caused, whew, you get a lot less tolerance for the bullshit going on, on in your right. relationship system. Right. Because you're like, sometimes when we're on our own, we can get trapped in this storyline of like, 
does everybody lie? Is monogamy impossible? Am I like ridiculous for asking for him or her to not watch porn anymore? Is that like unreasonable for me? Or I don't know, just to like be honest about things like where they are and what they're doing Mm -hmm. or, and so nothing shows us that faster, you know, how unreasonable these crazy stories are going on in our head, like sitting in a group setting and watching different scenarios play out in front of us. So yes, if you are stuck, find a group. (laughs) I'd love that. That is, that's really brilliant because you're right. I mean, it's the same thing of like going to 12 step meetings, right? You do get to hear your story and you get to hear so Mm -hmm. many different versions of it that it does kind of help you get more centered and where you are and what's happening, what you want to do, who you want to be, what you want your life to look like. You know, you just get to hear so many versions. I had a client just recently go through this and talking about getting to that place of, of sort of indifference, right? And it's not indifferent, like, oh, I don't care anymore. But I think you do hit a place where you just know when it's time. And there's a certain piece around that and not like a manic energy or a super angry energy or F this, I'm out of here and a lot of chaos and drama. That's not it. <laughs> I feel like no. there is a, a certain a, calm and a, and a certainty an and you do. Yeah. An acceptance of his or her limitations. Right. So I'm not going to badger you down for not going to meetings anymore. I'm not going to beat you up for lying to me for the five billionth time. It's just this, I see this switch where it's like, of course you lied to me. You know why? Because you're a liar and you don't want to do any work to stop that. And so that's what it, I see it just when I see that shift, I'm like, oh, okay, it's happened. So instead of, again, you, you would say that I'd write this story, oh, if I was clearer or if I worked harder or if I begged him or her one more time for therapy, maybe this would change. And then they slide into that, you know, that fifth, le- like fifth phase of grief, which is like just acceptance. Mm-hmm. This is his or her limitation. This is as good as it's going to get. And guess what? This isn't what I want. Yes. Okay. You just highlighted a really important piece here too. It's not trying to get them to change anymore. It is just accepting that they are who they are. And it's not saying that you have to be different if I'm going to stay. It's saying, look, you be you, right? You do. Mm-hmm. Like if, if this is you and this is your best version, like go for it. You do I'm just you. letting you know, right. I'm just letting you know that I'm not on the ride anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I deal a lot with that, with the sex addiction stuff, you know, because again, it's not so obvious as like, okay, just stop drinking and you're sober. There's a lot of like nuances to their behaviors and the slippery slope behaviors. And, you know, they might clear out the main thing, like having sex with other people, but then do other really uncomfortable, like uh, oodling other women or flirting inappropriately or, you know, secretly watching porn or something like that, or just lying. And So then you can spend a lot of years in that in-between state where they're like not quite relapsing, but they are, um, it's kind of like a dry drunk, but like with a little bit more nefariousness to it. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, all that other stuff, but it's, yeah, people just ultimately say, yeah, this is, this is, I think as good as it's going to get for you. And because I've built my distress tolerant, like we were mentioning, like, right, like I've come to accept 
that, yeah, I might be single for like the rest of my life, or I'm going to have to venture out to this dating world, which scares the shit out of me. Or yeah, I'm going to have to raise my kids in a broken home or a divorced home, which I have fought my whole life to avoid. I've now dealt with the fear of all those stories. Um, and I've kind of reconciled that I would just rather not be here anymore. Like being here makes me too angry, makes me feel less valuable, um, makes me feel like they're the, the voices in my head that's saying like, you're disgusting for tolerating so much abuse or, you know, the shame voices that are like, you're pathetic. I, I got to get rid of those. And the only way to get rid of those is to not be in this space anymore. Yeah, it's hard. When you were talking earlier about the blindsided, that really stood out to me too in, in how overwhelming and confusing that can be in itself too. Um, I had a boyfriend many years ago and I had no idea that he was a porn addict. And when, when our relationship went to the intimate level, he had some dysfunction and I didn't really get it. I was like, oh, this is mm -hmm. weird because he's a super sexual guy. Like, what is the, where's the disconnect, you know? And then I remember the first time at his house when I saw his porn collection and it was one of those moments of blindsided. And I was like, oh, that's what's going on. Right. I had no idea <laughs> that's what's going on. And then things started to click into place. And I was like, okay, now I know the score. <laughs> mm -hmm. And you're touching upon the other piece that's important about betrayal trauma, which is controversial, which is the betrayed partner has the right to know. Because yeah. I'm sure you're describing a feeling of almost relief of putting the pieces together. Cause for a long time you were like kind of grabbing at the dark going, what's going on here? Why isn't this working? These pieces aren't making sense. There's like lots of incongruencies around here, right? Which throws our monkey brain off into like crazy town. Whereas when we're given, we, in our sex addiction world, we give like a full disclosure, like a timeline of like the acting out behavior, which is controversial. Cause some people are like, oh, they don't, you know, they don't have the right to ask those questions. But the truth is they've been, blindsided so much. And, right. and what I always say is they've been robbed of all the information they needed to make the next best choice for themselves mm -hmm. and for their family, that you need to be given all the information. And we tell the addicts that stop lying. Cause I promise you, your partner is more likely going to leave you for the lies that you tell than the stuff you did. So just stop with the lying. It's, it's, yes, you shouldn't lie, but it's not about the lying. It's like not about the, the dumb, stupid thing that you did. It's how you lied to her face, lied to his face and just keep going. So the, the, the truth shall set you free is right? definitely. Because you know, too, like it accurate. feels like, it feels like forced powerlessness. It's one thing to be powerless because right. of my own choices, right? It's one thing to have some sense of powerlessness because of what I'm doing and how I'm behaving. It's a whole other thing when somebody else puts you there and you didn't even know you were being put there. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a true victimization there yeah. that has to be processed. And that usually is um, one of the trauma pieces that has to get processed, right? Because that's so stinking scary. Your brain wants to know when scary stuff happens, how do I protect you in the future? 
Right. And if a loved one is capable of lying to you and deceiving and, you know, just bamboozling you for all those years, you have to do a lot of work around being able to write some kind of story of empowerment around that. And actually the, the addict giving a disclosure so you can start putting the pieces together to realize, oh God, yes, I remember that was a time where I was like, okay, so my instinct isn't like totally off. Right. And I'm now I can kind crazy. of count on it. Yeah. And I can now reconnect with it. Like I always say, one of the biggest recovery steps for betrayed partners is rekindling and reconnecting with your instincts and intuition that moves you from this powerlessness to a state of like, okay, I can kind of smell BS. Like I didn't think I did, but now I can because th this person's kind of giving me the information I needed to backtrack and realize like, oh yeah, this is where I knew something was going on. Yeah. So that, that's an important recovery part. Yeah. It's so good. Kristen, how can people find you? I know you mentioned your YouTube channel. Yes. So um, YouTube channel and website are all on this, the same thing. Kristen Snowden, make sure it's K-R-I-S-T-I-N Snowden, S-N-O-W-D-E-N.com. Um, I have workshops. Um, I also have, um, I wrote a book with an addict. He's um, a sex and drug addict, got Brasser, and we kind of went through the 12 steps. And my goal was to help um, non-addicts realize how helpful the classic themes of 12 steps are. Um, I always joke that we all can like recite one of the 10 commandments or like the golden rule, but most of us don't even know one of the 12 steps. Yeah. And I think it's a tragedy because it's these are classic concepts that have helped millions of people be set free. Um, and so they're also not really specific to AA. And I feel like that's no, a no, major misconception of AA. Totally. There's like, high, there's AA like work all, you reinvented can work the wheel yes. and made up these 12. So I'm like, no, no, this is the same stuff from the beginning of time. Like Aristotle, right. Socrates, right. they talk about the same concepts. It is. And as time goes on, like, right. And I write about that, like how these themes actually now we have like fMRIs to show that like actually doing right. daily prayer or meditation or whatever you want to call it right because there also there's a misnomer that 12 steps comes with a heavy dose of religiosity and like legality to it and I I just really I I, I wanted to honor what the 12 steps could be and you don't need to identify as an addict to, to benefit from a lot of these right. concepts. And I will link all of that in the show notes so listeners, you guys can get there right from your podcast app. Super easy. Kristen, thank you so much for doing this with me. What a great conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. You've reached the end of another great episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. Candid and honest conversation about addiction and recovery. Be sure to visit us at addictionunlimited.com to join the conversation and access show notes and links to everything we talked about. Love this episode? Please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes to help us improve and give you the information you want. Thanks for listening. See you next week.